I'm really thankful to have had the last uh, four weeks kind of soaking in the preaching of the Word um, to get adjusted, and now it's time to see if I remember how to do this, (laughs) right? Uh, This morning we're in uh, the first 12 chapters of Genesis, and it's kind of a summary and review of what uh, was covered previously in the Genesis series. Daniel preached, I, I believe, nine sermons through chapter 12. Uh, so I will not, not do as I usually will do. I usually will read the passage of Scripture before the sermon and then proceed to explain, but it, it'll work a little differently for this, this bigger picture uh, sermon. Uh, I'll kind of read some as we go along through different highlights through these 12 chapters. Uh, let me ask just a brief word of prayer before we begin. Father, bless our time together. Open our ears to hear the word that you would have for us. Minister to our hearts. Build up your saints. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was about 16 years old, I was given a really good gift. It was a gift that I'd been looking forward to. Uh, I had longed for this day, as many 16-year-olds do. You know what day I'm talking about, right? A burgundy Jeep Cherokee, and here's the key, with four-wheel drive. Okay? Okay. It wasn't new, but it was new to me, and it kind of smelled like new. Uh, And every time I would ride with my windows down past the landfill uh, on New Hope Road, I would glance on the other side of the road where there were holes filled with puddles, and I was itching to go four-wheeling. I'd never been four-wheeling by myself. So one day, on the spur of the moment, I pulled off by myself, first mistake, And I started living the four-wheeler dream. About 40 seconds later or so, I'm not exactly sure, that dream ended. It ended badly. Uh, I got stuck and water started seeping up through the floorboards and I knew that this was not good. So I did what any reasonable teenager would do. I got out of the Jeep. I went over to the front driver's side tire which was stuck in mud and I proceeded to lift with all my strength to get it out of the mud and you might be surprised at what happened do you know what happened nothing (laughs) absolutely nothing happened all 140 pounds of me could not budge that jeep no matter I'd, I'd ruined that really good gift that my mother had given me and there was nothing I could do to make it right there was I was absolutely incapable of fixing the wrong that I had done. And this is what we see in the first 12 chapters of Genesis, although it's much more serious in nature than losing my precious Jeep Cherokee. In these first chapters of Genesis, we see that God created all things good. Man corrupted them by his wickedness, and there's nothing that he can do to make things right. But God is faithfully preserving a seed through which all the nations will be blessed. God will make all things new. He will make all things right. He will make all things good again. Throughout this, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, Moses is writing to the people of Israel as they are about to enter into the promised land, as they're about to take the land that God had promised. And he wants them to see that their God, the God of the covenant, is this God of the universe. He is the creator of all things, and he is their God. 
And he wants them to trust not in themselves, but in him. He wants them to see the examples throughout these, these uh, Genesis and Exodus. He wants to see the, the human failure, the inability of man to get out of this predicament. He wants them to see this so that they will trust in him as they enter into the land. He wants them to trust him for the victory. There are many important themes throughout Genesis 1 through 12. The goodness of God and the goodness of his creation. The sinfulness of man. The utter incapability of man to restore God's good creation. Really, the sinfulness of man throughout each narrative seems to increase more and more and more. And we get a a larger picture of this inability. We see the land which God has promised to his people. A restoration of sorts of God's good creation in the garden. And perhaps most importantly, we see this seed of the woman who will be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. And as one commentator points out, we recognize, though, that this isn't just their story. This is our story as well. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of humankind in a struggle really between two nations. One nation from the seed of the serpent and one nation from the seed of the woman. A struggle which will reach its decisive conclusion only when the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. Everything started out well enough. God spoke the universe into existence. So in Genesis 1, 1 through 4, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. It was God who had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, who had given them victory over their enemies, and who was about to open their path into the land he had promised. This God of the covenant, the Israelites would recognize as the same God who created all things for his glory. And his creation was good. Did you notice throughout Genesis, the the creation narrative, this refrain of the goodness of God's creation? God saw the light and it was good in verse 4. The land and the seas, verse 10, were good. The vegetation which produced according to its seed was good, verse 12. The two great lights and the stars were good, verse 18. His creatures and beasts were good, verses 21 and 25. Then he creates man in his image and we read in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And we shouldn't let our watering down of the word good cause us to miss the goodness of God and his good creation. The author calls us to look, to to behold, as if to gaze upon the goodness of all that God had made and delight in it. Like when you put a hard day's work on your yard, put in a hard day's work on your yard. Nowadays, I hardly break a sweat with my riding lawnmower. But you look out over all that you've done. Things are trimmed up and tidy and it is good. And you receive satisfaction. You receive receive delight in that. But God didn't just manipulate materials 
and make things look good. He created them, spoke them into being, formed everything from nothing, and it was all very good. And this reminds us, of course, the reason we were created. To worship God and to enjoy Him forever. To delight in His goodness and in the goodness of His creation. That we might see and enjoy the goodness of God in all that He has made. Like a child observes little ants and delights in that intricate creation. We are to delight in God's creation and let that move us to worship Him. So one temptation as... Lindsay pointed out is for the creation or the gifts to be ends in themselves, to let our delight terminate in those good gifts of God. Instead, though, we ought to look in the gift and through the gift, ultimately to the giver. Our ultimate delight must not be in the gift, but in the one who has given it to us. Probably you've, you've been to a birthday party like I have of a child, and they're opening their gifts, and they're just ripping everything open. They're so excited, and it turns out they are a lot more happy about the gift than the one who gave it to them. They forget some, that's why we have to say, say thank you, say thank you, or they'll forget. We all too often are like that ourselves, that we could basically take and enjoy the gift and basically ignore the giver, and it can happen to some, with some of the greatest gifts that we have. Consider, for instance, our own families or your children. Is it possible that we terminate our joy in those precious gifts of God and not let them also turn us to worship and delight in the giver of that gift? Or when the gifts of good food or drink or pleasure become ends in themselves, when our affections terminate in those gifts, when we see them as our ultimate joy rather than God, we become idolaters. It's not just a mistake or a small thing when we delight in things rather than God. Now, we don't reject the gifts. That would be an offense to God's goodness as well. You receive and enjoy those gifts, but you let your heart be filled with joy at the one who has given them to us. You receive them in such a way that you recognize that the joy that you have in the gift is actually just a hint of the joy that's to be had in God Himself. We are called... We are made, created to delight in the goodness of God. So consider, have you done that lately? Have you delighted in the goodness of God? Do you do that when you're all alone? Thinking about life as you lay your head on your pillow? Delighting in the goodness of God and worshiping Him for His goodness? When you're with your family? As we are here together at church, as we sing praises together, as we pray together, as we hear His Word, let us delight in God, our Creator. Sometimes in the midst of life's troubles, broken relationships, it might be difficult for us to remember God's goodness, God's good creation. Remember, He had prepared a land for His people in which to dwell, and Adam and Eve walked with God in peace, and they walked with one another in peace. 
All of life was characterized by peace. And even as Jason and Lindsay mentioned, the little boy that, that died recently, we were reminded this, this world often lacks peace. That we long for that peace that they had in the beginning. We long for peace with God. We long for peace with one another. And the very fact that we long for those things remind us we have lost uh, remind us that we have lost something very valuable. And we lost them when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. We taste, we get tastes of God's goodness in his creation, but we have lost something in the fall. God created everything for his glory, and humans were his crowning work. But unlike every other creation, unlike every other creature, man and woman were made in the image of God, to have a special relationship to Him and over His creation. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God gives the command. The Lord commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It appears that soon after Satan tempts them they disobey God and specifically notice the temptation that Satan gives he urges them to question one the truthfulness of God and the goodness of God he tempts them to question did God actually say you will die you won't die here's the truth of the matter here's what Satan's saying here's the truth of the matter God doesn't want you to become like him He's keeping you from something that is, will really be good for you. He knows that if you eat, then you will become like God yourselves. Satan first got them to question his word and then to question God's motives. And this is actually the way we are tempted often today. Aren't we tempted in some of those same ways to, to question God's word? Is it really true? Did God really mean that? Did He really say that? And to question His motives. To think. I mean, I think all of us in, in our worst have this sneaking suspicion that God wants to keep something really good from us. He's keeping me from what would really make me happy. Really make me satisfied. From what will be good for me. And our sin comes back to faith. Do you believe what God has said? Do you believe that He is good? And until you bring your understanding of your sin all the way back to this, you'll actually only be able to treat symptoms of the problem. You'll only be able to modify your behavior without actually touching the source of the matter. Adam and Eve's disobedience was eating from the tree, but their sin involved something much deeper. A fundamental unbelief in what God had said and in who he was and his identity. And of course, we know things don't work out well for Adam and Eve. They don't work out exactly how they had hoped. And they don't work out for us that way either. They expected when they ate, they would become like God himself. Instead, they were alienated from God, estranged from God. And ashamed. Now, instead of walking with God, they're hiding from him. trying to hide their sin and their shame, they found, as the previously mentioned commentator said, human happiness does not consist in being like God, 
but rather being with God. Enjoying the blessing of His presence. But they forfeit that, and we see the result in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Alienation and enmity with God between one another and even with the land. They are exiled from the garden. In verse 24, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see the corruption that resulted from their sin? Do you see how they wrecked God's good creation, their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, and with God's good creation? This is what sin does. We need to recognize this in our own lives, that sin corrupts all that is good. In those moments of temptation and being pulled by the lusts of the flesh, we need perspective. Sin corrupts. It wrecks God's good creation. Now, it's easy enough to see this in the story, and it's easy enough to see that in the, the story of people we know, the stories of people we know. We can, it's very clear to us when we look at uh, people who have uh, wrecked their lives how sin corrupts. But it's much more difficult to look at it in our own lives, to see how our own sin corrupts all that is good. We must not only consider how others have wrecked God's good creation, we have to consider how we ourselves have contributed to this mess we're in. So consider your own sin for a moment. How have you been complicit in corrupting God's good creation? How have you been complicit in corrupting your relationship with God? Your relationship with others? With the ones that you love. With neighbors and friends. How has your sin corrupted the good gifts of pleasure? Of relationships, of work. We can even think about how our sin corrupts God's good gift of the church. Think about how, how damaging gossip or backbiting or rivalry within the church can wreck God's good design, even of the fellowship of believers. Let us consider our own sins against one another, whether sins of omission or commission. And until we're able to see how we have been a part of this corruption, we won't see ourselves as a part of this story. And we won't see ourselves like Adam and Eve, desperately needing for someone to intervene on our behalf. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. But even in the midst of judgment, there's hope. God covers Adam and Eve with animal skins and tells the serpent in verse uh, chapter 3, 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is this hope. For one who will one day come, the seed of the woman who will decisively defeat the serpent. And in the generations that follow, these two lines will be opposed to one another. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman 
continues and grows, but so does the seed of the serpent. And there are threats to the promise along the way. The corruption which seemed isolated to the man and woman spreads and increases. It grows. They have sons and one rises up to murder the other. It's clear that sin not only affects one's relationship with God, but also with one another. And this plays out as humans increase on the earth. With Seth's son, Enosh, we are told that people begin to call on the name of the Lord. But his line is paralleled by another line, the seed of the serpent. And by the time we get to chapter 6, the evil has gotten so bad that God decides it's time to wash the whiteboard of his creation. To start over, a fresh beginning. Look at Genesis 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What was once good, very good in God's sight, has now become wicked, ugly. He hadn't changed, it had. But how do, we, how do we explain what we read here? God was sorry that he had created man and was grieved to his heart. Is this like a dad, me too, all too often, who lets the children get wilder and wilder until finally he's had enough and he says in his anger, that's it, that's enough. You better go to your room right now or else. No, God hasn't simply lost his temper. And it's not like this all took God by surprise either, right? You know that he not not only knows all things, but he ordains all things that come to pass. For God to be God means that he is sovereign. Genesis 6 was a part of God's plan. What we're seeing here with this language is God meeting us where we are. He wants to show us his attitude towards sin, that he hates it. He takes great offense at sin. Sin grieves God. Oh, that sin would grieve us in the same way. That it would appear to us as ugly, as wicked, That it would deeply grieve our heart as it grieves our God. So God destroys the world by flood. But Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of judgment there is salvation. In the darkness of a corrupted world. God looks down on Noah and has favor. It's as if Noah is a sort of second Adam. He's given the same command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's given dominion over the earth. He's given not only the green plants to eat, but also meat for food. And we thank God for that. Amen. And this is really one of the bright spots, a glimmer of hope in the midst of increasing corruption. And there are a few others, too. There was Seth, the son to replace Abel, whose offering was acceptable to God. And when Seth had his son Enosh, the scripture says, at that time, Genesis 4, 26, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. And then there was Enoch, 
in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, who walked with God and was no more because God took him. And there's Noah, who his father says in Genesis 5, 29, he will bring us relief from the curse of the land. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And he's described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. But what we see with every single one of these glimmers of hope is that they are short-lived. They seem to fizzle out. Every time we start to get our hopes up, sin rears its ugly head, and we are reminded of the fact that every intention of the human heart is evil from its youth. None of these men are the fulfillment of God's promise in the garden after the fall. None of them are able to bruise the head of the serpent. Adam desired to be like God and was deceived. Abel, whose offering was acceptable God, to God, was murdered by his brothers. Seth, his replacement, died also, like all those before him and after him, with the exception of Enoch. But Enoch was taken away, so how is he going to rescue us? As Adam ate the fruit in disobedience and became ashamed, so Noah got drunk on the fruit of the vine and was shamed in his nakedness. There was even a great tower that our ancestors built to make a name for ourselves. Maybe we can ascend to the heavens by our own strength, by our own ingenuity. We'll make it to the very throne of God himself. It's an endless loop, really. It's like the movie Groundhog Day. Have you seen that one? It keeps going. Same thing over and over. A broken record playing the same notes over and over. New beginning. Hope for the future. Failure, promise, new beginning, hope, failure, promise. Who will rescue us from this endless loop of destruction and despair? Someone, anyone, who can save us? Let us remember here the utter inability of humans, that's us, to restore all that was broken in the fall. Man is absolutely incapable of fixing what he has broken, of, of making right what he has messed up, of mending our relationship with God and with one another. And consider this for yourself. Have you come to the end of yourself when it comes to re your relationship with God? That there is nothing you can do to fix all that you've done wrong, that there's no way you can atone for your sin to make up for your rebelliousness against God. So we should make no mistake here. You are absolutely helpless and hopeless before God on your own. There are no amount of tears you can shed to cleanse you of your sins. There's nothing you can use to cover your shame before God. We see it in this narrative of Genesis 1 through 12. You are unable to make peace with God. And consider this in your own relationships as well. Consider your own ability to fix other people. I like to say to myself, I can't fix myself. How am I going to fix anyone else? Now this is not to say we can't work on our relationships and our interpersonal skills. Some of us definitely need that. But, and we can all grow in those areas. But this is a reminder to us that as long as we are here on the earth... There will be conflict. There will be sin. There will be broken relationships. And we won't be able to make all things right. 
But in this story, God is preserving his faithful seed. The offspring of the serpent continues, but so does the offspring of the woman who will one day crush the serpent's head. The genealogies we read in these chapters, they're tracking this offspring. From Adam to Seth to Noah, the seed is preserved. And in Genesis 12, we come to a decisive turn in the story. Abraham is called to leave his family and his country and to go to a land that God would show him, a promised land. Notice the promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless those uh, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's as if he's saying to Abraham. Abraham, you don't have to build a great city because I'm going to make you into a great nation. You don't have to earn my blessing. I will bless you. You don't have to make a name for yourself. I will make your name great. And you don't have to capture the land back for yourself. Here I am appearing before you, promising to you, to your offspring, I will give this land. And yet with the the language, we get the sense that the promise is still a long ways off. I will make you a great nation. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To your offspring I will give this land. Remember, it's the Israelites who are reading this story on the verge of entering in to the promised land and winning it back. But they would need to remember they're not the ones who would win it. God would win it for them. And as they trusted God, he would fight for them and give them victory and possession over the land. But even that land wasn't an absolute fulfillment of God's promise. And those offspring weren't actually the offspring to which God was referring. You see, through these events, God was preparing his people for the ultimate unveiling of the seed of the woman. The promised offspring who would come and restore the goodness of God's creation by decisively crushing the head of the serpent. And you know the one I'm speaking of. It's no mystery to us now. Jesus Christ, the second Adam who passed the test, not in a beautiful garden, but in a dusty desert. Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, whose sprinkled blood, we are told, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Christ is... Really, the better Enoch, who walked with God, but refused to be taken from the land without first offering his life for others. He is the the truly righteous and blameless man who finds favor in the eyes of God. Christ is a true ark who carries us through the judgment for salvation. He's the offspring of of Abraham, through whom all the families of this earth are blessed. The one whose name is great, higher than any other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. In heaven, in earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is the one who has opened the way to the true promised land, the city which is designed and built by God. We have 
corrupted God's good creation by our own sin, by our rebelliousness. We deserve to be drowned in God's wrath. But Christ is our faithful Savior who bore the wrath of God when He died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. He gives us victory through His resurrection from the dead. And now all who repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith are included in the offspring of Abraham. And they are heirs of the promise of God. And Christ will one day fully and finally set free creation itself from its bondage to corruption. He was there in the beginning creating all things. And he'll be there till the end making all things new. So do you recognize that this is your only hope? That Christ is your only hope for the sin you're currently struggling under and failing time after time? Yes, you must fight it. You must battle your sin every day. You must put to death the deeds of the body. But Christ has won the war. He has defeated the penalty of sin and the power of sin. So don't hope in your own impotent resolutions, but hope in Christ. Or for your broken relationships, Christ is your hope. You must pray for wisdom. You must take practical steps for resolution and peace, but don't hope in your own behavioral strategies. Hope in Christ, who not only brought reconciliation between God and man, but between man and man. Hope in Christ to heal and to change and to restore that which is broken. And for our church, Christ is our hope. We must work and serve and speak the gospel. And invite people into our homes and into our church. We must do that. But we should not hope in our own carefully laid plans and strategies. For spiritual and numerical growth. Or for ethnic diversity or social diversity. Hope in Christ who died to save a people for himself. And will gather his elect from every tongue, tribe, people and nation. John says in the Revelation, chapter 21, and Lindsay read some of this, it is a reminder that this is where we are going. This is where all of creation is headed. To be restored, to be made new. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It reminds us of the garden, right? He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Let's pray together.
Our Father, you are good, and we have corrupted your good creation. We have sinned, and we pray that you would, you would cause us to examine our own hearts and lives for areas in which we have disobeyed your word, in which we have contributed to this mess. And we pray that you would cause us to rest from our labors, to cease trying to do what only you can do, what only Christ has done for us, that we would simply rest in your redemption for us. I pray that you would mend broken relationships. I pray that you would mend broken bodies, that you would mend broken hearts. We pray that you would minister to us by the gospel of Christ, the offspring of Abraham, who is making all things new. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.